Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us this morning and we trust that your promise is kept and you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. Amen. Please sit. I don't know if this happens to you, um, but I get called a hypocrite online a lot. Not me, not me personally, but the kind of Christian that I am. Uh, this week, the presenting issue was people who were made uncomfortable by the Super Bowl halftime show, which was basically a striptease, except the performers were already wearing so little that there was no need to take anything off. Anyone who expressed any discomfort, especially for moral or religious reasons, was immediately labeled a hypocrite. Now, as a church, we claim to be what's called biblically orthodox, uh, which to many people in the world is just a synonym for hypocrite, right? <laughs> You've heard it. You claim to espouse the love and grace of Jesus Christ, but then you want to impose all these moral rules on people, claiming that they're God's rules. Why shouldn't a nearly naked Jennifer Lopez gyrate her you-know-what during a sporting event that my six-year-old is watching. What about love and grace? So I've been thinking this week a lot about the relationship between love and grace and rules. And I think that Jesus' discussion of the law here in Matthew 5 that we just read can help us understand how those things can live and work together. Because love and grace and rules have always lived in a kind of tension. But I think that it's a tension that is understandable in Christ. So after college, I was tangentially involved in a ministry called the Silver Ring Thing. I'm not sure if this was nationwide or just sort of a thing where we were, but the Silver Ring Thing was a thing in which teens would wear silver rings, proclaiming their intention to save themselves sexually for marriage. Now, for some people, this actually meant something. Right? In other words, they were attractive enough to the opposite sex that abstinence and faithfulness was a real sacrifice. It was like my friend who decided not to date and then pledged to not even kiss a girl until his wedding day. Girls wanted to date him, he had opportunities to kiss, but for him, this was a sacrifice. If I had made a similar announcement, people would have said, uh, who exactly is trying to date you? <laughs> who exactly are the girls you're stopping yourself from kissing? Real big sacrifice, bud. So the, these two things, the idea of kissing, dating, goodbye, which was a popular book at the time, back then in evangelical circles, and my experience with the silver ring thing kicked off, at least in my life, what all these years later has come to be known as purity culture. Perhaps you've heard this term. At their simplest level, though, these were simply efforts to help young people 
be obedient to God's clear command in Scripture that sex is to be reserved for marriage. Simple enough, right? So what's the problem? Well, and you'll forgive me uh, if I simplify things a little bit here. I think the problem comes in in two stages. The first part of the problem was that the culture at large thought all of this was completely ridiculous. Sex is a natural part of life, you would hear. It's unhealthy to suppress these evolutionarily important urges. And then even you would hear, how could you possibly know if you should marry somebody if you don't know if you're sexually compatible? You're doing yourself a disservice if you don't have sex before marriage. These are the sorts of things that the world would say back to people who had kissed dating goodbye or who were wearing silver rings, who were trying to be faithful, trying to be obedient. J-Lo gyrating is an impressive work of art, but the world isn't a Christian world. And so those accusations could, with the help of community and church, be resisted. But then there was a second stage to the problem. Then difficulties began to arise within the church. People who were trying to understand the profound nature of the gospel, the good news that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, outside of anything they had ever done, were currently doing, or would ever do, these people would, on occasion, and I count myself among them, would get confused about the law, about morality, about obedience, about good works. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the good news, saved by grace through faith, not your own doing, a gift from God, not a result of works, not obedience to the law so that no one may boast. Therefore, the thinking went, anyone who tells someone what to do or how to be obedient to the law is undermining salvation by grace through faith. They're working against the gospel. Therefore, the people behind the silver ring thing are legalists. And so purity culture, and you can look this up online if you don't believe me, purity culture became a negative descriptor for the allegedly legalistic ways that law-loving holier-than-thou Christians were making people who had sinned sexually feel bad about themselves. But do you see the problem? The problem with this thinking is that it's not just purity culture that gets a bad rap. It's the desire for purity itself. All of a sudden, Talking about God's plan for sex, for instance, as laid out in the Bible and striving to uphold it was bad. If you believed in the gospel, telling someone that God's good design for sexual intimacy existed was somehow off limits. You weren't allowed to do it. It was legalism. 
Now, with that in mind, listen to Jesus preaching at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Where does Jesus get off being so legalistic? Be salty, he says. Let your light shine so that other people can see your good works. If you break a commandment, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you do the commandments and teach others to do the same, you will be called great. Is this the same Jesus who would stand silent before his accusers? who would willingly go to a criminal's cross outside the city walls and shout out loud, it is finished, as he died for the sins of the world? Is this the same Jesus who is the gift of God, which Ephesians says accomplishes our salvation not by works, but by grace? How can it be? It's almost as if this is a different Jesus, as if this Jesus would support the ministry of the silver ring thing. It's almost as if this Jesus is in favor of purity and holiness. Well, of course he is. This Jesus is in favor of purity and holiness. Jesus is the gift of God by which we are saved and calling us to lead lives of radical obedience. And holiness. Let me read that section of Ephesians 2 to you again. I'll read the part that I already read. Because we always begin there. We can never forget that part. But then I'll read the next verse too. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, understood in that order, a Jesus who calls us to good works can start to make sense. Here's what I wrote on the welcome page of our website, something that's in our membership covenant too, if you'll forgive the indignity of me quoting myself. Uh, Jesus promised his followers that if they were burdened, they could come to him for rest. He assured them that his yoke was easy and his burden 
light. These words found in the Bible in Matthew 11 might seem quite foreign to you. Life is hard work. And isn't following Jesus just more hard work? Don't you always have to watch what you're saying and doing, being careful to set a good example for others? Didn't Jesus ask us to do hard things like loving our enemies? Isn't that a heavy burden? Well, yes. But there is good news. Jesus actually gives what he asks for. The good news about Jesus is that he already bore the hard yoke and heavy burden, and he did it for you. His accomplishments are yours for free. Now, this is how we understand the relationship between the law, be salt, be a light to the world, obey the commandments and teach others to do the same. This is how we understand the relationship of the law to the gospel, the good news. This is how we can be a church that talks endlessly about the boundless love of Jesus and supports, for instance, a biblically orthodox design for sexual purity. This is how we can relentlessly preach the finished work of Christ for sinners and desire to be faithful to the order for life that God has set out for us in Scripture. This is how we can say that God saves you completely outside of what you do and that what you do totally matters. We can say all of that because as Ephesians proclaims, God has prepared good works for us. We are not on our own. We're not saved, turned loose, and then commanded to do better. And we are certainly not saved on the condition of our obedience. No, in the package of our free salvation is a relationship with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and a set of good works that God has created just for you. You are, according to God's own promise, a new creation in Christ. The law has done its killing work, and Jesus has done his resurrecting work. This new creation, you will be the salt of the earth. You will be a light to the world. You will obey the commandments and call out in repentance when you fall short. As a church, we will teach each other by the guidance of the Holy Spirit how to do these things, how to be salt, how to be light, how to be obedient, always remembering that this obedience is itself a gift from God, our loving, a result of having been first loved in our sin by him. This is how Ephesians imagines that such an obedience is possible. First, the people are reminded of the free nature of their salvation. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then, and only then, obedience comes from the faith that is God's gift to you. For you, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. The pre-existing gift of Christ gives rise to the faith that results in obedience. In fact, the faith creates the obedience. So it's not like you have some new capability now. No, you need the grace of Jesus Christ just as much as ever, every hour, every moment. It's not that you have some new capability. It's that you are a new creation. As Paul said, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And his promise in the Sermon on the Mount is that his life, his life, now lived in us, would fulfill the law. I have come, Jesus said, not to abolish, but to fulfill. And he gives his life to you. So we seek to be what Christ calls us to be. Salt and light. Doers of good works. We seek to be these things knowing two things. First, that the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ will be there with us when we are revealed to be the desperate sinners that we are. And second... That the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is the only engine by which any kind of Christ-likeness is possible. Righteousness and obedience come in and through Christ alone. He has fulfilled the law and given that fulfillment to us. So now we seek to live in it. And this isn't legalism or hypocrisy. This is the Christian life, helping each other seek purity, helping each other seek faithfulness, calling each other to repentance. Jesus makes us an extravagant promise that his good news will do everything. By the enlivening work of his Holy Spirit and by the resurrecting power of Almighty God, by grace, You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Thanks be to our God, who in Christ has raised us from the dead and made us new. Amen.